So good afternoon, everyone. Can we get the microphone on again, please? For those who cannot hear. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I hope everybody had a good break, a good lunch. And so we sort of seen as a theme, uh, really hitting on it a lot in our last hour together, that we are called to show merciful love to others, even to the greatest of sinners, those who've hurt us, those who've hurt others, those who have hurt those whom we love. And that that merciful love that we show to others is a participation in and a reflection of God the Father's love for us. But as sort of talked about at the end of our discussion, and it's only truly possible for us to do that, to show mercy to others, to show merciful love, if we have first experienced that love in our own lives. Looking at the, the parable of the prodigal son, when we have allowed ourselves to be loved, to be received in the arms and the heart of the Father, because once we allow ourselves to be received by the Father, then guess what happens? We come to know our identities as sons and daughters, to live in the light of that love. And when we do, we can act with confidence and we can show the Lord's mercy. Now, as all things that we're talking about, and I guess in a certain sense all things in the spiritual life, it's much easier said than done. Maybe through an encounter with someone, uh, maybe through an encounter in prayer, we could have had that transformative experience of the Father's love for us, that we know our identity. But what happens? Time passes, the years go on, and it recedes into the background, and we forget, and then we can come to doubt who we are. We can come to doubt our identity, we can come to doubt that God is truly our Father. And so as a result, that, that fear, that insecurity sets in, and we begin living in the shadows, and we begin to put walls up because of the fear of being hurt, the fear of being abandoned, the fear of not being loved. And ultimately, we live in the darkness, and as a result, we feel unlovable because we forget our identity. And so in that, as we pull away, we often will sin again. We sin again, and we beat ourselves up. And unlike when we maybe are living in that light of our identity, we know that we've been received by the Father, what ends up happening is we see ourselves not only as unlovable, but we also see ourselves as unforgivable. And so instead of running back to the Father, we hide. We stay away. We go in the other direction. Shame takes over. Not so much guilt for what we've done, but shame for who we are. We begin to identify ourselves with our sin. 
we begin to be so hard on ourselves. We hide like Adam and Eve after they sin. And so I see this all the time. People who commit sins and the shame takes over. They forget their identity. And what do they do? Instead of running to the Lord, they run away. Instead of going to confession, they go in the opposite direction. Instead of coming to Mass, they don't want to come to Mass because they're afraid that God is going to judge them. It leads to discouragement, tremendous despair. And seeing the Father, not so much as someone who's waiting there like the prodigal son to receive us back, but as a judge, as a tyrant, waiting there to nitpick us, to punish us, or even worse, that the Father is so angry at us like our passive-aggressive friend, he's going to give us the silent treatment. He's abandoned us. He's not going to talk to us. The Lord is far away from us. And I've seen this happen over and over and over and over again, even in the lives of good people. Now, I could make you ask you to raise your hand. I won't. And say, how many times you, good people here, people of goodwill, have experienced this? I'm sure if you're honest, most everybody would raise their hands. It's something typical for who we are. How do we, though, handle this when we experience it in our own lives? Not necessarily to the greatest degree, but maybe smaller degrees. How do we deal with sin in our own lives and our own hesitancy, residence, to receive the Father's mercy and to allow ourselves to be received by God? And so that's the third topic. Overall, we're talking about how do we deal with, how do we come to terms with sin of the church? We've looked at sort of theoretically how we do it. We've looked about mercy. But now is the real key, central topic. How do we deal with, with the sin of the church? It's because we've got to face it in our own lives. How do we deal with sin and our own weakness and our own imperfections? How do we deal with that? What do we do when we sin, when we fall, when, when our imperfection prevails? we realize that we're not living up to our identity, or we forget to. Because as I said last time, we need to, before we start caring about the log and other, the splinter in other people's eyes, we've got to care about the log in ours. What about our own sin? And so what I want to do, and, and you'll see that this is really inspired by this and a lot of the other talks, particularly the next talk is inspired by it too, we want to look at who I would argue is the, the greatest spiritual genius of the past 150 years, and that is none other than St. Therese. St. Therese points the way for the answer to this, of how we deal with it. We're going to see her again in the next talk, too. And so, of course, everybody here, I'm sure, has some familiarity with St. Therese. What I want to do is I want to, 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 to highlight one of my favorite quotes, not from Therese necessarily, but about St. Therese, and I use it in a lot of the talks that I give. And it's from uh, one of the great, if not possibly the greatest Carmelite scholar of the 20th century, who's now blessed of the church, uh, blessed Marie-Eugène de l'Enfant-Jésus, who wrote that big two-volume set on Carmelite spirituality, I want to see God, and I'm a daughter of the church. I'm sure you'll have a copy of it here. He's written a number of other things. But he has this one little book, which is actually out of print now, called Under the Torrent of His Love. It's basically two or three um, spiritual conferences that he gave on St. Therese. And so that's actually uh, the sheet that was handed out, um, four pages, uh, 26, 27, 28, and 29, from that book. 
Um, and so it's love and poverty is the chapter that we're going to look at. And the quote comes from that, but I encourage you to, of course, look at the whole chapter. That's your spiritual reading for this time. And, and I'm going to read this quote where he's talking about Therese and Therese's spirituality. He says, Therese would even cultivate what we might call the art of failure. The art of failure. She would perform some action which turned out unsuccessful. She had been unfaithful. She would then say, if I had been faithful, I would have received the reward of merit. I was unfaithful. I am humiliated. I am going to receive the reward of my own poverty and humiliation. And he goes on to say, needless to say, that she never sought unfaithfulness for its own sake. And so I have the whole section for the book that I really encourage you to read. What I want to talk to you today is about the art of failure. We're going to learn to deal with sin in our own lives. We're going to have to learn to deal with failure. How to fail. How not to be perfect. How to not sin necessarily, but how to recover when we do fall and we do sin. Because it's genius. And this is what St. Therese in her little way is really about. Certainly, she admits, our successes can draw us closer to the Lord. Whenever we resist a temptation, whenever we grow in virtue, whenever we do that charitable deed, we get the reward of merit. But so often what we think is when we fall, when we're unfaithful, when we sin, that all of a sudden all is lost. I'm drawn away from God. Sometimes in small things, sometimes in big things. And I'm not saying that mortal sin doesn't have its consequences. It does. But what Therese's genius is in this art of failure, even when you fail, you can gain merit too. You can draw closer to the Lord because you're humiliated. You realize your poverty. And that's good. Because unless you recognize how poor you are, the Lord can't fill you up. And so instead of beating ourselves up, and running in the other direction like Adam and Eve did in Scripture, we can find profit by going to the Lord and learning how to fail. St. Therese said, and there are a number of quotes, the saints accept themselves the way they are and make use of their imperfections to raise themselves near to God. So we can let our imperfections, our weakness, even our sin in a certain sense, I'm not saying, hey, I want to sin to get closer to God, but what comes as a result of sin, these, the poverty we realize, the humilities, we can use these things to raise themselves closer to God and trust that the Lord can use them both to bring us closer. Do you see that's the genius? The Lord can use both of them to bring us and draw us closer to his mercy. So particularly for people that I know who deal and struggle with perfectionism, which is basically 95% of most women I work with. <laughs> just being honest, ladies. Just being honest. This is the solution. Therese is the way, and there's really no other way. As you know what, you're not going to be perfect. And when you're not, when you fail in big ways or small ways, instead of beating yourself up for that, it can be a path to sanctification. It can be a path to heaven. This is just the genius of Therese, and people don't realize it. Now, I want to make a caveat here. I am not talking specifically about corruption 
crime, or malicious sin. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about people who say, oh, I'm going to go murder somebody, and then I'm going to go to heaven. No. That's, that's a different thing. There's corruption, and then there's sin. And so we are taught, I know, and I realize I'm talking to a group of people who want to be holy, who are trying to do their best, who have goodwill. We're going to come back to that term. I am sure everybody has a goodwill. If, you, if not, you wouldn't be listening to me, and if not, you really wouldn't be hanging around with Sean Pine. I mean, it's true. Uh, you know, there's, there's no infiltrator here. And so, you know what? We do need forgiveness for the big sins, for those direct, deliberate, intentional mortal sins. We're talking about people here who do sin, who fail, mostly out of weakness, mostly out of habit, mostly out of imperfection. I'm not saying that it can't apply to the other stuff. A person who does repent after committing a grave sin and has a change of heart, indeed, that can turn them on the path of holiness. But we're assuming, in a certain sense, people who have goodwill. So what is the art of failure? How can we learn from Therese to profit from our failure? And I want to say this, like profit from our sin. You know what I'm talking about. That when we do sin, Scripture says even the just man sins seven times a day. How can we profit from it? How can we learn the art of failure? The first is this, and the most important, and it sort of ties back to what we talked about. We've got to have trust in the Father's unconditional, merciful love for each one of us. Unconditional! Merciful love. We know, at least in our brains, that he loves us for who we are. He created us and loved us. He wants us to find salvation. But we also have to believe and to know that he loves us in spite of our failings, in spite of our sins. There's nothing that we can do to make the Father give up on us. He may not chase after us, just like he didn't chase after the prodigal son, but he was there waiting. This is the merciful love that St. Therese talks so much about. She makes her consecration to merciful love. It's the love that never gives up, that is unconditional, that doesn't judge, that doesn't condemn, that doesn't shame. In fact, in a certain sense, I would say that he loves us even more because of our weakness. He loves us even more because of our sin, as hopefully, if I have them in these notes, we'll talk about. Why? Why is this? Because he knows how weak we are. Do you think God the Father doesn't know that we're going to sin? Do you think that he doesn't know our weakness? Do you think, well, hey, I expect that guy to be perfect. I expect that guy never to mess up. No. He created us. He doesn't expect perfection. Now, Scripture, of course, says, be perfect your heavenly Father is perfect. Take that into context. He's talking about loving our enemies. Should we strive for perfection? Should we strive to be better? Absolutely. But just like a father who, who is the difference, who knows the son, who's trying to do his best and fails, is going to be very, very merciful versus the one who just doesn't care or is trying to be seditious or who isn't putting forth effort. We know that we are. He is drawn to our weakness. I think that's the real genius. 
And just like the loving father or parent who sees the child struggling and trying their best, the heart goes out, wants to help, wants to love it up, is willing to show mercy. He sees our goodwill. He sees our desire to please him. He knows our hearts. And of course, how does he know that? Because he sent his son who experienced not our sin, but our own human weakness. And the son is the image of the father. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 2. He is able to deal patiently with the ignorant and erring, for he himself is beset by weakness. And so, through Christ, we know that the Father loves us. He's not waiting to condemn us when we fall. And so Jesus is here to show us the Father. He's the icon of the Father. And his woman caught in adultery. And the Samaritan woman in chapter 4, he's not there to condemn. He's there as that reflection of God the Father's love, who goes to them in their weakness, who goes down to meet them personally. Again, not distant, but really he, he, he's there with the woman caught in adultery. He's the one, you know, writing in the sand or whatever. He's there sitting next to the woman in the well, shocking and scandalizing other people because he's there talking to the Samaritan woman. And so I see people come all the time who just can't get their mind wrapped around this. The God of the Father knows and understands their weakness and is merciful and is not there to judge or condemn. And so one of the, the examples that I use is imagine there's a child. And the child knows, the parents have told him, do not play with that knife. And of course, the kid plays with the knife and cuts himself. And the parent walks in the room and sees the kid bleeding. What is the parent's reaction? Oh, I'm going to let you bleed for a little bit, boy. I'm going to teach you a lesson. No, the father runs immediately. Are you okay? Now, granted, there may be a talk a little bit later on about why you shouldn't use the knife. I shouldn't do that. But why, why, if we've sinned and we are hurting ourselves and others, would God the father sit there and let us wallow? Why? It doesn't make any sense. You'd call a father who did that evil on earth, but yet we think this is what God the Father would do. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. In the same way, a father teaching his child to ride a bike, the father is not there pushing the kid off of the bike. And the father will sometimes let the child fail, let the child fall. The child can get its balance, and he's there putting the child back up guiding him along his way. We can learn from our failure. And the truth is, too often, we have a hard time trusting in God the Father, trusting in his love for us, and that his patience with us and his understanding of our weakness is because we don't trust our earthly parents. You know, I get a lot of parents come to me um, because of their kids going to college and say, Father, what can I do um, to, to keep my child Catholic, to keep them in the faith as they get older. And I can tell you that the most important thing is for a parent to build up a relationship of trust with their child. And if you're, you can do that, and if your kid can grow not to, th to think that you're going to judge him when he messes, makes a mistake, condemn him, shame him or her, there's a trusting relationship 
so that when they fall, when they are struggling, when things get rough, they know they're going to come to you and you're going to show a mercy. Granted, you're going to tell them right from wrong, but you're not going to condemn them. You're not going to ridicule them. You're going to show them mercy. But there's so few young people who have that sort of relationship with their parents. And so they come to the priest, hopefully, or maybe the religious or some other people. Or sometimes they go to the people they shouldn't go to. We're going to guide them in the wrong path. In no way, shape, or form, parents or grandparents, am I trying to say, you just say everything that this kid is doing is okay. No. But if your child cannot trust to come to you because they think you're going to, be, you're going to judge them or condemn them, guess what? They're lost. They're lost. And so that need to say, listen, to cultivate that relationship, the parent to be vulnerable with the child, to build those bonds of trust, And when you trust and you know you won't be judged, you're more apt to run to God the Father as a child. And so, yeah, we we need to experience that, particularly through our parents or through other people. And we know that. We're not going to be judged. God the Father is going to show us tremendous mercy. We need to experience it. Because I think the best way besides parents is through the sacrament of confession. You know, hey... You're forgiven. Don't worry about it. Let's try not to do that again, but the Lord's going to show you forgiveness. That's where we experience that mercy. So that's the first is that trust in the unconditional love. The second is this, not to learn to accept our weaknesses and failure. This is one of the things that Father Jacques Philippe talks so much about, and, and his thought, of course, is basically from Therese is that so often we can be perfectionist, A, or we can cling to an unrealistic view of holiness. We want to be a superhero, not a saint. We want to never fail. We want to never make a mistake. Or even worse, we have our own idea of what type of saint we want to be, but the Lord wants us to be a completely different type of saint. We cling to that because, well, we read it in a book or we think this is what holiness is like. And the Lord trying to say, no, 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 I want you to go in this direction. But we don't listen because of our preconceived notions. The truth is the most important thing besides knowing and trusting the unconditional love of God the Father for us, if we want to be a saint, we've got to admit and accept we're not superheroes. We're not perfect. We're weak, we're fallen, we're sinners. It's never an excuse, but it's a fact. Again, we never want to use, like, well, I'm a broken person. This is my excuse for what I do. No, not at all. There's healing. There's grace. We've got to be careful, particularly if we know we fall in the trap of perfectionism. But acknowledging our own weakness and learning to accept it and realizing that there may be certain habits and tendencies and faults that we can pray for and pray for and pray for all we want that are not going to go away. And where do we find groundings for this? It's going to be in St. Paul. We all know the very, very famous passage, and I'm going to read it. 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 to 10. I will not boast except for my weaknesses. Though if I wish to boast, I shall not be a fool, for I shall be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. 
and to keep me from being too elated by the abundance of revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Now, what, we, what it is, we really don't know what that thorn in the flesh was, but it could be anything. Three times I besought the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I will all the more gladly boast of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's there in our weakness. It's there in our failure. It's there in our imperfection. And indeed, it's there in our sin that we can encounter Jesus. He's there waiting to grab us, to pick us up, to come and approach us. We're the ones who go in the other direction. He doesn't, he doesn't shame us when we fall. He's there to make us strong. And indeed, he permits certain struggles. Well, how do we know what struggles he permits versus the ones he doesn't? That's up to be discerned. But he does permit them to keep us dependent on him. I'm not talking about vicious, malicious sin, but this could be habitual stuff. Sometimes big mistakes we make every once in a while. It makes us realize we can't do it ourselves. We can try all we want, but it's that falling flat on your face that makes us often realize, hey, guess what? I can't do it myself. I need the Lord. It makes us realize our own poverty because only then can the Lord fill us up? But boy, oh boy, we hate it. We all want to be holy, but we don't want to admit we're per imperfect. We don't want to admit that we can't do it ourselves. We don't like to admit that we need help. St. Therese again, if God wants you to be weak and powerless like a little child, do you think you will be less worthy? Consent then to stumble at every step, even a fall, to carry your cross feebly. Love your powerlessness. Your soul will draw more profit than if, supported by grace, you achieve with a certain flair heroic acts, which fill your soul with personal satisfaction and selfish pride. That's powerful stuff there, and it's radical. Nobody was writing about that in the 19th century. She's saying, hey, Learn to accept powerlessness, imperfection, and even your failures. Guess what? That's much better in growing humility than, hey, look how holy I am. I resisted that temptation. Look how good I am. It's a completely different way of doing things. But it is so, so crucial. And as we're going to see, it becomes crucial for what we're facing today. Because the reality is this. The cross of Jesus is the standard. And the cross of Jesus is the apparent failure of Christ. Of course, we know he really didn't fail because of the resurrection of the third day. But it surely does. We could talk about it. Ratzinger talks about it in a number of different places. But here's this, this great quote from Pope Francis. The cross shows us a different way of measuring success. Ours is to plant the seeds. God sees to the fruits of our labors. And if at times our efforts and work seem to fail and not produce fruit, we need to remember that we are followers of Jesus Christ 
and his life, humanly speaking, ended in the failure, in failure, in the failure of the cross. So y'all are the community of Jesus crucified. Guess what? Y'all better get ready to fail. Oh, get ready to suffer. No, get ready to fail. Get ready to not be perfect. Get ready to fall flat on your face. Because then you find that union with Christ. It's not pleasant. We're like, oh, look how much I'm suffering. I'm so holy. No. It's not what the community of Jesus crucified is about. At least I don't think so. It's through the failure of the cross, humanly speaking. Again, God's wisdom is a lot different than human wisdom. You may fail, or apparent failure of the cross, but the Lord does and can and will work through that. It's one of my great favorite quotes from blessed John Henry Newman. It is the rule of God's providence that we should succeed by failure. Again, this is particularly important for a culture. People, we love to succeed. I mean, we like, we like, I want progress. I want to show that I'm moving forward. I'm becoming holier. I want benchmarks. I want a little progress report. And so often that's what happens. It's like we're playing a game or something, and we want to, we want to see how far we're moving. And, and so what happens, and I see it a lot of the times, people are praying and they feel they're not making progress. They're not achieving anything in prayer. It's just dry. It's miserable. So they say, oh, I'm not happy, or God's not happy with me. I'm not making progress. I'm not showing results. The Lord doesn't expect us to show results. That's not what a relationship is about. The Lord expects it to show up. And even when we fall, to go to him so he can pick us up. This is something that really, I mean, think of it in your own lives. Think of the biggest failures that you've ever had. I'm talking, it could be in, in school, it could be in the spiritual life, it could be in the moral life, it could be in your own your work life. If you consented to it, maybe a month, maybe years after, haven't you seen, whoa, I learned a lot from that. We really did. Now again, I'm not saying, hey, I'm going to go fail, I'm going to go get fired from work tomorrow. I'm not saying that at all. Or I'm going to go commit some grave sin so I can learn. It's not an excuse for it at all. But when we do fail, if we accept it, if we learn to accept our own humanity, great good can come from it. And third and finally, and this is, this is the, whole, the whole core of Therese. And if you've read Father Jacques Philippe's Searching for and Maintaining Peace, all that is is a rehashing of Therese and a lot less flowery sacred language. It's all it is. It's all it is. Do not lose your peace when you fail. Instead, run to Jesus, who shows us the Father. All right, so we know God the Father loves us unconditionally, especially when we're weak. We understand our own weakness, and we know we're going to fail, and so we make mistakes. I know this is easier said than done. Don't freak out. Don't lose your peace. Don't let fear take over. This is the heart of Therese's teaching. This is the little way. The little way is technically not doing small things with great love. Technically, it's not. The little way is learning to fall and not lose your peace and keep pressing forward. A little child is small, weak, and guess what? Understands it, and therefore has the great trust in the Father. 
wants to reach out and hold the Father's hand. And so when she falls, she doesn't lose peace because she knows the love of the Father, just as Therese really knew the love of her father. That's, I think, one of the... Her father was that perfect expression of the Father's love for her. That's why she had trust, unlike maybe a lot of us. None of us probably have fathers who are canonized saints. You know, she did. Father Jacques Philippe sums it up. And again, he sums it up a zillion times in his little book. The real spiritual battle, rather than the pursuit of invincibility or some other infallibility beyond our capacity, consists principally in learning without becoming too discouraged. This is what I mean by not losing your peace. To accept falling occasionally and not to lose our peace of heart if we should happen to do so lamentably. In a big way. Not to become excessively sad regarding our defeats and to know how to rebound from our falls to an even higher level. This is not always possible, but on the condition that we not panic and that we continue to maintain our peace. But what happens is, is when we fall, particularly sometimes in big ways, what happens? We freak out. We run the other direction. Anxiety sets in. Shame sets in. And as a result, instead of going to Jesus, we go in the other direction. I use this analogy all the time, particularly for people who come to me and they've sinned in some grave way and they wait nine months to go to confession or back to Mass. I said, if you are cold, it's a cold night, are you going to warm up by drawing closer to the fire or further away from it? Well, Father, going closer to it. Then why is it when you put yourself out in the cold because of your fall, why do you run away from the fire? You've got to go to it. Maybe you're afraid the fire is going to burn you, but no, that's not how it's going to work. But we run the other direction. We panic. We freak out. And so the heart of the little way, the heart of this art of failure is learning to accept our weakness and failures, to not panic, how to maintain your balance and go back and seek the Lord's mercy. It's about, it's about seeking balance when we fall, picking ourselves back up. Not panicking. Why? Because we know ourselves. We don't expect perfection. We, don't, we, we know we are going to mess up. And that we have that great confidence and love of God the Father, knowing that he's merciful, knowing that he's not there to judge. He's going to encourage us to do better next time, probably. But he's not going to rub our nose in it. And all the quotes from St. Therese that, that talk about this, this is the one I, I use the most, and it's my favorite from hers. And it's the one that sums up the little way. This is the little way right here. And so in a certain sense, I'm equating the little way with the art of failure, even though maybe it's not exactly the same thing. No way's more than that. But this is the art of failure. Of course, we should like to suffer generously and nobly. We should like never to fall. What an illusion. What an illusion. What does it matter if I fall at every moment? And that way I realize my weakness and the gain is considerable. If you are willing to bear in peace the trial of not being pleased with yourself, you will be offering the divine master a home in your heart. Let me repeat that. If you are willing to bear in peace 
the trial of not being pleased with yourself, you'll be offering the divine master a home in your heart. You've just fallen. You're disappointed. You're discouraged. It's the trial. You're not happy with yourself. But what has St. Therese said? If you can accept that to bear in peace, then guess what? That, 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 that hole that's open there, that failure is a place where Jesus can make a home. He's not going to run away from it. He wants to enter into it. If you are willing to bear in peace the trial of not being pleased with yourself, you will be offering the divine master a home in your heart. Now she continues. It is true that you will suffer because you will be like a stranger in your own house, but do not be afraid. The poorer you are, the more Jesus will love you. The poorer you are, the weaker, the, the more despicable you seem, the more Jesus will love you. I know that he is better pleased to see you stumbling in the night upon a stony road than walking in the full light of day upon a path carpeted with flowers because these flowers might delay your advance. Do you all see how radical this is? No one had talked like this before, or maybe a little bit, but not in this direct fashion. It's revolutionary. Not only for sins now, but sins in the past. Hey, we're not out to shame you. Don't beat yourself up. Sin is a real thing, and it's serious. We're not denying that. But hey, we're weak, we're human, we fall. We, we, there are all these different factors that come. If we cannot learn to be at peace with ourselves when we sin, we're not going to be able to be at peace with others. And quite often, the person who is the harshest and the most judgmental on others is the one who does not know mercy for himself or is not relying on the Lord's grace. This is the real antidote to our perfectionism, to our pride, accepting in peace the trial of not being pleasing to yourself, to know that he's drawn to our poverty. So repent. Hey, I messed up. Go to confession. Tell the person you're sorry. But maintain peace. This is true for a lot of stuff. And yeah, it's true for criminal activity. Criminals can indeed repent. We hope they repent. But it's especially true, again, I've seen in my own experience, for sins against purity. For all kinds of sins, but sins against purity. I'll be honest. When it comes to that, women feel so much more shame than men. Men feel shame. Men are pretty used to it. You know, that's the, that's the thorn on our side. Lust, testosterone, you can't, it just bothers you. I think, I think it was like Father Fry used to say, you know when you're going to stop, guys, you know when you're going to stop struggling with temptation with the flesh? Three days after you're dead. <laughs> it's going to always be there. Ladies is so much different. Something that wouldn't even bother a guy, a woman will stay away from confession for 40 years because of it. It's true. And again, I'm not making excuses. We've got to understand, a lot of the times, these sins against the flesh, not all the times, they're not done out of lust. They're done out of loneliness, stress, self-loathing. We need to avoid the near occasion to sin. We can't lose peace. And this quote I'm going to give you, some of you may have heard it, it's from St. Therese. 
Uh, this quote, probably more than anything else, like if I, when I give it to people, particularly people who struggle, it's like, like the cloud is lifted. So St. Therese is writing to one of the priests that she write with. I forgot if it was Maurice Belair or the other one. She says, it is amazing how easily souls lose peace when it comes to this virtue of purity. However, there is no temptation less dangerous than that one. The means of being freed from these temptations is to regard them with calm, not to be astonished, much less to fear them. That's the worst thing you can do. You can freak out when it comes. Be sure that one temptation of pride is far more dangerous. And God is much more offended when we yield to that than one commits a fault, even a grave one, against purity. Even a grave one against purity. Because God has consideration for the fragility of our corruptible nature, whereas for a fault of pride, there is no excuse. Pride, however, is a fault that souls commit often and easily without being upset. Like Father Champagne said, give me an amen. He's, amen. It's true. We pre-see it. We're not saying that, hey, sexual sin is real and we need to deal with it. It's not a good thing. But it leads to that shame. We beat ourselves up. But we, we can commit all kinds of pride and not even think twice about it. And so, can't be ashamed. We're weak. Go to the Lord when you sin. Learn the art of failure. The art of failure is not losing your peace. But here's, though, the real key and the real genius of all of this. We talked about that need of receiving or allowing ourselves to be received by God the Father. But so often we don't want to do it because we feel unlovable, we feel shame, we're living outside of our identity, particularly after we fall. But it is particularly through our failures that we can become the most open to receiving the Lord's love. Because when we fail, when we sin, guess what? We realize we're not perfect. The wall is not completely impervious to things coming through it. We realize that we're vulnerable. This is a word that's sort of popular today, and, and I use it a lot in my campus ministry. Vulnerable, what does it mean? To vul, from the Latin vulnus, to be open to being wounded. We need to learn to be vulnerable. Because when we put the walls up, or if you prefer science fiction, the force fields, <laughs> guess what? We can go out, we can shoot our photon missiles out, but nothing comes in. We don't allow ourselves to be loved. And those walls come up because of our shame, our failure, our self-hatred, whatever it is. And so what happens is when we fall, guess what? It's a chink in the armor. Maybe a small little chink. It may be a brick that's removed from the wall. It may be a glitch in the force field. But we realize that we're not invincible. We want to be invincible. We're not invincible when we fall. And so what happens is, though, when we fall, when we fail, what do we want to do? Well, there's a chick in the armor. Let's go plug it up. Let's go back to being invincible. Instead, this is the way we need to let the Lord in. Let him in through that for him to tear down the wall, to transform with inside. So failure teaches us, actually in a certain sense, 
compels us to be vulnerable, to admit we're not perfect. And going back to what we talked to last night, that's the thing. What does the church need to do? What do we need to do? I'm not saying we need to air all of our dirty laundry. I don't think that's what Balthazar was talking about either. But we need to admit, hey, guess what? We got skeletons. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. Again, I'm not saying we need to go tell everybody what we've done, but at least admit it to ourselves and to the Lord. It teaches us humility. Humility. And that's the foundation for growth in the spiritual life. And so it's in that vulnerability, a small chick in the armor, a big chick in the armor, of those walls coming down, of putting away our shame, that we can come to know the Father's love and the Father's heart, to allow ourselves to be received, to quit being the older son, to allow ourselves to be like the younger son. And so Therese loved the parable of the two sons, uh, or loved the prodigal son, but he had this, she had her own parable of these two sons who sinned. I forgot exactly where this is, but it's somewhere in her writings. And the father comes to punish, comes to punish. And so the one son runs uh, and, and, and genuinely apologizes and says he loves and will behave better. The father, though, the other one, the other one runs, I'm sorry, one of them runs, says, I'm out of here, I'm scared of the father. The other one runs to the father and genuinely apologizes and says, I love you and will behave better. And the father forgives him. Do you know what? The father knows he's going to sin again. He's like, you, you know your kids are going to sin again. You know, I'm not going to go do that again. You know they are. But he is ready to forgive him every time if his son catches him by the heart every time. And so I think that is the art of failure. The art is learning to catch the father by the heart. Not manipulatively, but genuinely. And I can tell you from my own experience, you know, as a priest now 18 years and learning to be a spiritual father and dealing with all the students. I mean, granted, sometimes they drive me nuts, trust me. But, you know, I can think of several. One who, 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 who sins out of her own weakness, his own weakness, thinking of one in particular, a lot making sins, but keeps coming to me and I forgive every time. What does that do? And I, it builds a bond of trust. I mean, this could be a number of them. It builds a bond of trust. For now, the relationship is that I'm the priest and you're the penitent, but I'm the father and you're the son or the daughter. And I'm sure Father Champlain's experienced the same exact thing. And they know that they can trust you. You're not going to judge them. You're going to show them mercy. You're going to call them up. That relationship builds. And in fact, those kids know that I'm a sucker. Everybody thinks I'm mean, but I'm really not. I'm going to be nice to them. I'm going to give them three Hail Marys and, and try to love them. They know that's what it is. And so they know that, they say, Father, they think, everybody thinks you're the mean one. You're the nice one. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I just look mean. <laughs> so if that's the case with me, if it's the case with Champagne, if it's the case with y'all, with your children, why would God the Father be any different? We love our children. We want what's good for them. And we can do the same thing by catching the Father by the heart. 
Now the truth is, again, this all sounds great, but you know what? Sometimes we're going to fail at the art of failure. So don't get discouraged. You'll fail and not trust, or you get mad at yourself, or you'll get anxiety and run away. You're going to fail at trying to fail, the art of failure. So say you're sorry and move on. Be patient. The art of failure, like any other art, takes a lifetime to master. You're not going to learn the little way in one day. That's why it's called an art. It takes a lifetime to master, so be patient with yourself. But all of this, though, how does it really lead to dealing with sin in the church? So I'm wrapping this up. I'm landing the plane. Well, of course, we face it in ourselves. That's the most important thing. We can sit here and point and say these cardinals are sinning or these bishops or priests or my spouse is sinning or my children are sinning. We can blame everybody. But we're, we're members of the church, too, and we sin. I got no control over anybody else. I got control over myself. I got to worry about the log in my own eye. But, as we saw last time, in the last talk, the more we experience merciful love, the merciful love of the Father, and again, as we learn the art of failure, we can experience that more, the more we're going to be willing to show it to others willing to forgive and to be patient with the faults and failings of other people. We're going to be much less likely to judge others. Again, stepping at a distance because we're close, because we've experienced the Father's merciful love for us. We're going to be less likely to judge others. We'll understand, albeit for the grace of God, there go I. I could be in that same exact situation. And so rather, we show mercy. We show compassion. And guess what's going to happen if we do that and we become known as people of mercy? People will be drawn to us because they know they will receive merciful love and not judgment. The person who is the most merciful usually is the individual who knows how much the Lord has forgiven them. They may be guilty and feel guilt for what they've done, they may be doing penance for the rest of their life. But they're the ones that will be most apt to show mercy. When we are sitting here and so harsh and so mean and so judgmental to other people, particularly people we don't know, it's going to come your turn one day, my boy. That's what's going to happen. It's going to be turned on us. And so to receive the Lord's mercy. But when people can come to us and they can know the Father's merciful love, that's where the conversion begins. We can sit here from a distance and say, everybody, y'all convert. Quit doing that kind of stuff. Quit putting your body where it don't belong. Quit saying those things. And, we, and there needs to be preaching about that. But does that really lead to conversion? Not so much. It's the one-on-one. But yeah, I know you did that, but I still love you anyhow. I know you did that, but I forgive you. I know you did that, but you're more than the sum of your weaknesses and failings. And so this is on a personal level. It's up close. It's in the crater. It's not always pretty, but that's where it is. You're not going to heal the church magically at a whole time. All we can really do is heal it one by one. And being that presence of the God's merciful love, 
And this is the true healing, the purification I think the church needs. Not the fires of justice. Granted, those may come, but we don't need to be calling for that. We need to be witnesses to the fires of merciful love. I'm sure some of you may be familiar with Jean Vanier, who is the founder of Large Community. He's written so many wonderful books. Uh, he works large community with people with mental disabilities to learn to live in community. And he's written so many things that are so beautiful about human weakness and failure and sin and the importance of being accepted in that, of like, hey, I forgive you. I know you're weak. I accept you in that. I'm not perfect either. We're in this together. And to build people up instead of putting them down, showing them love and forgiveness instead of judging them, instead of ostracizing them and pushing them out to the side. That's where the healing comes because now they feel relationship. They feel part of a community. They feel solidarity. Someone's there with them and the true healing comes. And I can tell you I've seen it and people who everybody else is condemned. Hey, what you're doing is not good. I'm really sorry you're struggling with that. But you know what? I'm not giving up on you. You're my friend. And hey, here's the community. Let's start working together. That's when the change happens. And guess what? That person may struggle with that for the rest of their lives, but they know that there's a place where they can be loved. And that's what I think hopefully this community is about. We don't are not judging each other and putting each other down. We may feel shame and we may fail, fail. We all do. But we're there to help each other when we do fail. Hey, you messed up. Guess what? I've messed up too. Let's go to confession. Let's keep moving on. That's why community is so important, particularly moving forward, not just for lay people, but for priests too. Y'all still love Father Champagne when he fails. <laughs> and that's the, that's, that's the support. I'm not saying this whole scandal, hey, look at the priests, we're all ostracized and people treat us poorly. I'm not, I'm not here for a pity party at all. But hey, we got we to gotta support each other. You know, this, this willingness to criticize and trash priests for what they've done, for sins they've made. Some of it are crimes, and you, you've got to face that. But you know what, Priest of Week 2, I, I read an article that, and I can't believe this individual wrote this article, about that any priest who ever commits a sin against the Sixth Commandment should be stripped of the priesthood. I can't believe the person wrote that. I said, imagine if we treated you that way. Imagine if the priest decided, one day, we're going to start treating the lay people that way. One sin against the Sixth Commandment, I want you to fess up to everybody what you've done, and you're out of the church. We talk about forgiving even for adultery. We've got to learn to forgive priests for what they've done. And then the priest should say, hey, I want to forgive you for what you've done. I'm not going to look any down on you. In fact, I'm going to lift you up. We've got to to do that for each other. It's got to work the same way. Does that make sense? Because you, you you don't... Imagine if the priest decided to do that tomorrow. We would never do it. The churches would be empty. What we love is the fact that the Father is willing to show mercy. And granted, if there's a crime, that crime needs to be reported. It needs to be dealt with, particularly when it comes to the abuse of minors. I'm not, I'm not denying that at all. But when it comes to the sins of the Sixth Commandment, there are other types of sins. Hey, we're all weak and we're all human. Let's start showing some mercy and compassion and supporting each other instead of ostracizing. Because the more we ostracize and alienate and not pull people in the community with merciful love, the more the people are going to do that type of behavior because they hate themselves, because they're trying to kill the pain. But if they feel loved and embraced, 
it's less likely they are going to do that. Not just in the sixth commandment, but in general. And so how are we going to deal with sin in the church as we're going to admit our own sinfulness and our own failure, learn the art of failure, and learn to love and accept others? We may not be able to change the Vatican. Yeah, we can be angry. I'm, heck, I'm angry, probably more angry because I know more of what's going on than you do. The thing is, I'm not going to let that anger eat my heart up. My responsibility is to show the Father's merciful love, and that's the way things transform. Not by pointing the figure, not by judging, not by being jerks. Not that any of y'all would do that, but it's just an important point. So what is your homework? First of all, how do I react to failure and sin in my life? How do I react to my own weakness? Do I practice the art of failure, or am I terrible at it? Number two, do I know the merciful love of the Father's heart? Am I vulnerable? Am I open to receiving it, whether it be directly through prayer or through other people? Or do I have walls up? And finally, what am I doing to show that merciful love to others? Am I here trying to heal the church, to bring mercy where sin abounds? Or am I just contributing to making people's lives miserable? Which one? And so take that some time to meditate, and then we will come back and uh, later this afternoon to talk for our fourth talk. So we'll close. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Close the beginning, is now, and we shall be, or without end. Amen. Saints, the rest of us here, pray for us. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.